Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic. In each podcast, we aim to provide relevant and helpful information for healthcare professionals involved in cardiac, vascular, and thoracic specialties. Enjoy. I'm here this morning with Dr. Luke Laffin, and he's a staff cardiologist in our preventive cardiology section. He is also a clinical specialist in hypertension, so we're very excited to have him here and talk about the hypertension guidelines. And, you know, they came out at the end of 2017. So how have they really impacted your practice, or how has your practice changed Great. because well, of them? Well, thanks for having me on um, mm -hmm. first. I think the main thing about the hypertension guidelines is that it really hasn't changed practice necessarily for mm -hmm. most physicians, but it really now aligns with what clinicians have been doing for many years. Mm -hmm. um, the, there's five main things that I feel like the hypertension guidelines really um, expounded upon or built upon. Um, one was just the idea about managing, or excuse me, measuring blood pressure mm -hmm. properly. Um, there's uh, a nice section in the guidelines just talking about what size cuff people should be using, how they should be measuring blood pressure in the office, but at home as well. Mm -hmm. The second point would be the emphasis on home blood pressure monitoring. Um, it's been something that we've been doing in clinic for many years and having patients do and send us their numbers. Um, but now we have more and more data to suggest that um, home blood pressures can oftentimes be more useful than just your once every six month in clinic mm -hmm. blood pressure. The other things that the guidelines really reflected was they created new definitions for what is elevated blood pressure and what is hypertension. Um, and really that reflects that we want to be a little bit more aggressive in our higher risk patients with decreasing blood pressure and getting below certain targets. And we've been doing that probably over the past three years or so based on more recent data from uh, large blood pressure trials such as the SPRINT trial. Mm -hmm. um, and then also this idea about treating um, blood pressure or targeting lower blood pressures based on cardiovascular risk, specifically 10-year cardiovascular risk and your likelihood of having things like strokes, heart attacks. Um, this is something that's not new to cardiologists or primary care docs um, because we've been doing that um, for lipid therapy and cholesterol-lowering therapy, but now we've transitioned it more to the blood pressure realm. Um, and then finally, the one thing that probably has changed my practice a little bit, um, but again, we were doing it, was a focus on rather than just starting one pill at a time or one drug at a time, we've moved more towards using combination therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so one pill with two or three different medications. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of the um, discussion that came out after the guidelines, people talked about, oh, more people are going to be on medications now because they lowered the thresholds. So have you seen that or is it similar to what you saw before? So I think it's probably mm -hmm. mo more similar mm -hmm. to what we saw before. Um, Generally, the people that may be on slightly more medicines or higher doses of medicines are those patients at higher risk because we are targeting lower blood pressures. Um, but I think it's important to remember that with all the controversy that surrounded the mm -hmm. guidelines and labeling patients that are now 130 over 80 or higher as having stage one hypertension, that really, unless you're high risk for cardiovascular events, the focus is not on adding pharmacological therapy, but it's doing those things that will lower blood pressure um, without medicines. So focusing on weight reduction, dietary sodium reduction, um, 
and, uh, and things like that mm -hmm. more than anything else. Proper sleep hygiene, um, because those all have a beneficial effect on lowering blood pressure. So you mentioned placing people on two medications. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of you know, choices between one medication, two medications, and now even at ESC they talked about the benefits of those dual um, one pill having two medications right. in them. How do you choose the right medication for the patient? So it's, it's, uh, it's definitely something that we have to think about carefully and, and consider. Um, when it comes to combination therapy, um, I think the thing to remember is that all the different classes of blood pressure medicines tend to have, um, or they can have, synergistic effects with each other. And it's been shown that um, a moderate dose of two medications is probably more efficacious and better for you in the long run than just a high dose of one. Um, so we have to keep that, take that into consideration. Um, the other benefit to combination therapy is it's easier to take. It's mm -hmm. easier to convince patients um, to take one pill that may have two or three uh, medicines in it versus taking three pills that are three different medications. So that helps. Um, and really, the nice thing about antihypertensive medications is that they're not, even these combination therapies are not cost prohibitive. Um, we're not talking $100 a month or anything mm -hmm. like that. Um, they're generally quite affordable. Um, so the one, the one block that sometimes patients have is saying, well, yeah, your blood pressure isn't that high, but we need to, we're going to start you on two medications as one. It's important to, to explain that to patients that really we're looking for a synergistic effect. Mm -hmm. We might be able to get away with one, but it's probably better to have moderate doses of both. Mm -hmm. Are there certain patient populations where certain types of drugs or classes of drugs would be better suited for different patients? There definitely is. Um, the main two determining factors um, that I use when I'm treating patients is thinking about the age of the patient mm -hmm. and then any comorbidities um, that they may have. So for example, um, there's some that are self-evident to all physicians. Um, patients with chronic kidney disease, stage 3 or greater, they um, should be on a blocker of the renin angiotensin system and then oftentimes will need another class of medication to control their blood pressure as well. Oftentimes a diuretic in combination works well. Um, cardiology patients that I, t I see more regularly, um, oftentimes they'll have compelling indications um, for a medication class called beta blockers. Mm -hmm. Now that's if they have um, uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, so the pumping function, or they have LV systolic dysfunction. Um, then similarly, if they have arrhythmias that we need to control, beta blockers can be a good choice, or if they've recently had a uh, myocardial infarction. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we talk about age, mm -hmm. one thing um, when I'm seeing patients that are maybe newly diagnosed hypertension or it's gotten worse as they reach 75, 80 years old, is to remember that those patients tend to have stiffer blood vessels mm -hmm. and so they tend to respond a little bit better to calcium channel blockers, so our amlodipines, um, uh, nifedipines, etc. Mm -hmm. So in speaking of the elderly, mm -hmm. I know again with the guidelines coming out there was concern over too low, too high, you know, for risks related to safety risks even yeah. for elderly patients. So what do you change your thresholds for those patients or? You definitely have to be aware of mm -hmm. them. Um, the, the data that, that changed the blood pressure guidelines most significantly was the SPRINT blood pressure trial. And they enrolled in a group of patients that were elderly, I mean, mm -hmm. you could be over 75, and they did show benefit. Mm -hmm. But this was a relatively robust 75-year-old. Mm -hmm. 
Um, what we run into trouble with um, is, again, these stiff blood vessels. Um, and what happens as we age is that rather than seeing the diastolic blood pressure go up, it tends to decrease. So we mm -hmm. get the separation between the systolic and diastolic blood pressure. So we have to be aware that we don't want to drop the diastolic blood pressure too low. Mm -hmm. um, the data is still a little bit um, um, conflicting about what, how low to go, mm -hmm. but we generally use around 60 millimeters of mercury that we don't want to go under mm -hmm. that level. With respect to other side effects, um, we do also have to be cognizant that elderly people don't tend to drink as much fluid, mm -hmm. so certain medications, their effect can be potentiated um, when we're dehydrated. So example, um, ACE inhibitors and ARBs um, mm -hmm. tend to have, be, have more potency, so it's important to explain to them to make sure you stay hydrated, et cetera, and reduce the risk for things like acute kidney injury. Um, so those are the main mm -hmm. thoughts on that. So it sounds like these guidelines truly are guidelines and you really have to create an individualized plan for the patient. You really have to look at the whole picture. You definitely do, and that's mm -hmm. why it's important to discuss it with your physician mm -hmm. um, about what works best for you, because one thing that works for your neighbor may not be the right, mm -hmm. the right thing. Um, there is trade-offs with trying to target lower blood pressures, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and that was clearly shown in the, the trials that were done. Um, but in the long term, I think most patients and most physicians would say, we'll tolerate the occasional episode of lightheadedness mm -hmm. um, or a little bit lower blood pressure for a reduced risk of strokes, heart attacks, and heart failure mm -hmm. in the future. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned home blood pressure monitoring, and I know as physicians today you are bombarded by ways that patients communicate with you mm -hmm. and different information that you're getting in all the time. As a clinician, how are you using the data from home blood pressure monitoring to help titrate meds or control blood pressure in your patients? I, I think it's very important and it's actually central in my mm -hmm. practice to doing that, it's paramount. What I typically do, especially when I see a new patient, uh, most of the patients I see have um, resistant hypertension, mm -hmm. so they're taking um, at least three blood pressure medicines without controlled blood pressure or at goal blood pressure. What I have them do is send me their um, numbers uh, via our electronic medical mm -hmm. record or via email. Um, just so we can have a better sense of what they are um, two or three weeks after the visit. So we're not waiting three months until mm -hmm. we see them again to actually address these. Um, so it's very important to monitor blood pressure at home. When medication changes are made, I typically recommend doing checking blood pressure at least three or four times mm -hmm. a week. Mm -hmm. um, but in the patient that's been on a stable dose of maybe one or two blood pressure medicines, it's very reasonable to only check a couple times a month. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that has been shown to be um, a, a decent marker of what your blood pressure is generally. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, last, I often get this question as a nurse that patients mm -hmm. want, you know, you, you mentioned um, lifestyle change. So you see a patient, they come in and everything's out of control. As they start losing weight and start eating better and controlling their sodium, but you have them on this medication regime, how do you kind of, you know, titrate or change things? They always say, can I come off my meds now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's a very common question <laughs> at the first visit and, uh -huh. and every subsequent visit, uh -huh. actually. Um, what I tend to tell patients um, and uh, the data supports this, is mm -hmm. that blood pressure management is 70% lifestyle, 30% medication. Mm -hmm. um, coming back to the guidelines, they have a really great chart in there talking about the non-pharmacological non strategies mm -hmm. to lower blood pressure. Um, so for example, 
the DASH diet, which mm -hmm. is a low-sodium, um, more Mediterranean-focused diet. That's been shown to reduce systolic blood pressure in a mm -hmm. hypertensive patient by about 10 millimeters of mercury. Um, then you couple that with weight loss, which is shown to, if one reaches their ideal weight, decrease blood pressure by about five millimeters of mercury. Mm -hmm. And then someone that's exercising regularly, similarly, you're going to get about a five to eight millimeter of mercury difference. So if you put those all together, you're getting almost 20 millimeters of mercury or more mm -hmm. in decrease in blood pressure. So if a patient comes to me and they're overweight, sedentary, on a mm -hmm. high sodium diet, I say, yeah, we might be able to come off blood <laughs> pressure. You might not have, um, uh, have to do more than lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, but that's in contrast to the patient that maybe is 75, elderly, mm -hmm. in good shape, watching their sodium already. Then that's really a consequence of stiff blood vessels and, and um, uh, and then years of stiff blood vessels mm -hmm. and just that accumulation of um, of years and so they need they may need blood pressure medicine mm -hmm. for the rest of their life mm -hmm. and that's okay and we say do the lifestyle uh, modifications and then we'll try and keep you at one mm -hmm. or two medicines and, and not have to do any more. Well thank you for talking to us this morning and um, I think you've provided clinicians with a lot of great tips with how to manage um, patients with high blood pressure and also how to incorporate the guidelines into their practice. That's wonderful. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and share the link on iTunes.